Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 this is the word to stand on for life with pastor ron arbaugh the word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of calvary chapel in san antonio a live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. We close another week. Time goes so fast. I know yesterday was Thursday, and I know Paula was in studio with me, but this does not seem like Friday to me. But this is the Friday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And as you know, this is a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, anything and everything. All you have to do is to provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app, and remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, tonight here at our church, we're going to be teaching, I'm going to be teaching Revelation chapter 15. We are at the end. We're at the end. This is when all of the tribulation is complete, these next two chapters, and then Chapter 17 and 18 are chapters that talk about sort of the consequences of all of that in a world that has rebelled against Christ. And then, of course, I can't wait till we get to Revelation chapter 19. When Jesus comes back, we come back with him and righteousness and justice is established whew, for the first time since Adam blew it. So that's what's going on here. Teaching out of Mark chapter 4 this week on Sunday. Let me get to some questions while we await any phone calls that come today. The first question is from Scott from our email inbox. He says, why did the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit but had to wait for Peter and John to lay hands on them when they accepted the gospel in Acts chapter fourteen or chapter 8, verses 14 through 17? Uh, Scott, this is a good question. You'll, you'll also um, remember a similar thing happened two chapters later in chapter 10 when Cornelius um, and his family received the Holy Spirit. Peter was also called to go down to there. Um, you know, there's a lot of people trying to make a big deal out of this, like, well, there's a second experience with the Holy Spirit, but that's not at all what was happening here. You have to understand culturally, Jews and Samaritans hated one another. And Jews, uh, at this point, and we get to Acts chapter 8, the church is entirely Jewish. Jewish converts to Christ. Philip goes to Samaria, and God blesses him, fills him overflowing with the Spirit, and this marvelous ministry, a revival, breaks out. And so Peter and John and the others heard about it, and, um, you know, Jews had a hard time, no, that can't be a move of God, God wouldn't, wouldn't take the Samaritans. And so Peter and John went to check it out. Um, the reason that the Holy Spirit didn't come upon them in power when they first believed was this was sort of God 
allowing for Peter and John to get there, to lay hands on them and pray for them. And that would validate the fact that God is indeed reaching out to Samaritans. And to, who better to have validated than two who were with John, Peter, and, and, or who were with Jesus, rather, Peter and John. And so then they could come back and tell the people in Jerusalem, all the Christians there, they could tell them that God is, is moving in the, among the Samaritans just as he moved upon us. Now he's going to do the same thing as I mentioned earlier in Acts chapter 10, and the Holy Spirit is just going to fall there. But Peter's already there. And he's going to say they received the Holy Spirit and they spoke on tongues just like we did. So who was I to deny them what God was so obviously doing? And so this was just two particular times where uh, Peter and John were sent to validate the work of the Spirit. And evidently the home church in Jerusalem needed, because of prejudices, because of their bias, they needed to, 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 to have some um, witnesses there, credible witnesses. And so that's what Peter did. He just came back and um, let them all know, hey, God's even reaching out to Samaritans. Remember, they were told to proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea and then to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. And this was just them being witnesses to the fact that God's Spirit was starting that expansion and starting to move. So Samaritans, that was a tough pill for Jews to swallow. Gentiles, in Acts chapter 10, that was even worse. So Scott, that's the reason and the only reason there were authentication um, messengers, so to speak. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Robert says, Pastor Ron, what's the best way to measure a church effectiveness? Is it size or is it adding new believers? And then just a question mark. Robert, um, I, I don't think size is ever a, a good way to measure a church's effectiveness. I know a lot of churches that are really, really small churches that are very, very effective. The work of God is being done faithfully there. The work of God is being done uh, in such a way that um, he's being glorified. People are getting saved. Lives are being changed. So it, it's not about size. Now, it's a very American thing. We've done this, you know, it's the, with the advent of, of mega churches. Um, you know, we, we always have a, a tendency to think that bigger is always better. And boy, if your church is 2,000 or 5,000 or 10,000, God's Spirit is really moving, and it's, it, it's a sign of God's approval. We know that's not true. Uh, there are a lot of really, really big churches who are also really, really bad churches. And it's not effective in terms of fulfilling the commission that God's given them. Uh, it's not effective if the message isn't being proclaimed clearly and accurately. It's not effective if people don't realize that they need to turn from sin and turn to Jesus and in the process pursue personal holiness. That's not effective if that's not happening. One of the real, real difficult things, Robert, with a lot of these, especially the those that lean towards seeker-sensitive churches, which many, many, many of the huge churches are. You know, if you want to have a big church, you want it to grow fast, just tell people what they want to hear. Uh, people will flock to that, itching ears, and uh, they'll find people that will tickle those ears. So uh, it's certainly not size, and there are Churches, as I said, in small areas, churches in rural areas that are very effective and, and pastors and the Christians are very, very effective. Uh, I do think, and you mentioned adding new believers, I think that is a legitimate way to measure effectiveness. One thing that I can tell you, Robert, is that where the word is being taught and the pastors and the Bible teachers are faithful, people will be getting saved. Now, it's obviously a very different picture in different locations and different sized churches. But um, just just generally speaking, Robert, I think we'll probably, we, we probably have 30, maybe a few more, 30 or so new people every Sunday. Now, all of them don't stay. I'm not everybody's cup of tea. Um, but But here's the thing. Our people are telling people about Jesus. 
our people are inviting them to church to hear the word taught. And so there's always new people. That means there's always people getting saved. And I think that's a, a legitimate way to measure a church's effectiveness. But there are other ways. I think a church's faithfulness to the word of God. I think if a church is faithful to the word of God, God's word will not return void. So if they're faithful to teach it, I'm not talking about just preaching or do topical messages or telling stories. I'm talking if they'll teach the Bible the way Acts chapter 2 church was told to do. That's, that's the pattern that was established for churches for all time. If churches are faithful in teaching the Bible, then the church is effective because God's Spirit is working through His Word and people are going to, to be changed. They're going to be, they're going to be saved. I think as people um, are in the Word, I think marriages are going to get healthy. I think children are going to grow. I just think it's a, a healthy way to measure church. So not size... Um, adding new believers, I think, is a legitimate way. Um, but I think th- that's the best way to measure, Robert. Not size. I want to say that again. Not size at all. Good question. Jordan says, PR, that's me. Is it always wrong to date or marry an unbeliever? The answer, Jordan, is yes, it is always, always wrong. Period. You've got to decide, are you going to be obedient to Jesus, or are you going to do what you want to do? So it's always wrong to date or marry an unbeliever. As a believer, starting out, now realize there's a lot of people that, that are got married before they got saved, they got married before they were serious about following Jesus, but assuming that you're a born-again believer, um, to even entertain the idea of dating an unbeliever, is sin. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It's First Corinthians chapter 6. And so we've got to decide if we're going to do it. Now, Jordan, even as I say that, I realize this is one of the Bible verses that most Christians have just ripped right out of their Bibles, figuratively speaking. Um, you know, well, that doesn't seem right, and he's nicer, she's nice. Um, the reality is it's always wrong. I want you to think about something, Jordan. And I don't know if you're asking for you or somebody else. But if it's for somebody else, then you can ask them this question. Why would you want to share your entire life with somebody who isn't going to be in heaven with you forever? Why would you even consider that? Somebody that doesn't love your Jesus. We're supposed to love Jesus more than we love anybody else, any human. Why in the world would you even consider marrying somebody who's not going to spend forever with you in heaven? I, I can't imagine, if, if, if Paula was an unbeliever, I can't imagine, we're 52 years together, I can't imagine her not being in heaven with me. Now, she may fantasize about me not being there, but, but seriously, if in fact you really love somebody, wouldn't you want them to be in heaven? Jordan, it's also true that marrying an unbeliever is going to cause more pain over a long period of time in your life than almost anything else you can do. The tension, pain, spiritual attacks. What do darkness and light have in common? You've got to answer that question, so why would you even want to? Now, regarding dating, I I know adults in my church have been frustrated with me over the years over this, but I tell them, look, how can you even consider allowing your high schooler to date an unbeliever? You know what kids these days do? Unbelieving kids have sex. Why would you want to even expose your child, your son, or your daughter to that? Why would you want them to be in a place where they could get emotionally involved with somebody that they can't marry? Why would you put a stop to that at the beginning? And the answer is always, well, you know, it's kids and they're in school. and it's, uh, but, but see, our job is to protect our kids, not to be their friends. Our job is to protect them. So this is just one of those things that you've got to decide. Did Jesus know what he was talking about? Or did he not? 
And I really think that this is something that most of us really don't have really strong feelings about. Jordan, I wish you had called Paula yesterday and asked her how much pain was involved being married to an unbeliever. Now, she, she didn't marry me as an unbeliever, but she got saved 13 years before I did. And, and I just, I made her life a living hell. I didn't want anything to do with her Jesus. That's the answer. Hope, hope the message came through clear, Jordan. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Lawrence said, what advice would you give to a married couple that attends different churches? My wife goes to a charismatic church and I prefer solid Bible teaching. Lawrence, um, you're the head of the house. It's real simple. Um, I would tell married people, how can two walk together unless they agree to do so? Uh, there's two problems here. Um, one, evidently, you're not a strong enough leader. And two, she's unwilling to submit to your spiritual leadership. So here's my advice. Get counseling right away. And get counseling at, at a church that exalts the word of God. You're responsible for your wife's spiritual condition. You're a steward. God has given you the opportunity, the blessing, and the privilege of being the one who shows your wife who Jesus is. And so here's what you do. You sit down and you talk through this. A lot of times people don't talk about it because it starts an argument. If a husband and wife can't talk without arguing, that just demonstrates that nobody's really serious about following Jesus. So I would say to get counseling now. Ask your wife to go to counseling with you. And then decide, are we going to do this to honor Jesus? Is our marriage going to be one that brings him honor? Or is it going to be one that dishonors him? And honestly, Lawrence, uh, it's just there's just no way this ever works. And when you stand before the Lord on that day, and he's going to say, how did you do? I don't think we men really understand the import of this. Obviously, the first question that we're all going to answer is, what did you do with Jesus? Now, that issue's been resolved when we're born again. But I think as we stand to receive rewards or lose, or lose rewards, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I think the very first question I'm going to be asked by the Lord is, okay, what did you do with Precious? That's God's name for Paula. What did you do with Precious? Did you love her the way I wanted her to love? Did you love her the way I love the church? Were you kind and were you gentle and were you joyful? Were you passionate? Did you tell her hard things if she needed to hear hard things? Were you quick to apologize when you blew it? You see, we're going to receive or lose rewards based on that. So, Lawrence, this is something I think in these last days especially, you've got to pay special attention to get into counseling at your church as soon as you possibly can. If you and your wife can't talk about it and resolve it based on the Word of God, then... Get counseling. Thank you very, very much. Rodney asks, does Acts 13.48 imply that only some are appointed to salvation? Oh, thank you so much. I was going to have to look it up. My producer did it. Um, I'm going to go back to verse 47. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When... The Gentiles heard this. They rejoiced and glorified the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed and the word of the Lord spread throughout that region. Now, the question here is about the part that all who were appointed for eternal life believed. No, that doesn't mean that only some are appointed to salvation while others are excluded from that. It simply means, Rodney, that God knows who is and who wasn't. 
uh, let's say there's a crowd of 100 people around and you're preaching the gospel and 15 of those people make a profession of faith. Um, God knew that those 15 people were going to say yes. Before you ever preached it, you got to share in the rewards, but before you ever preached it, God knew that this was their appointment day, their graduation day. And so that's all that means. Those who were appointed to salvation, those that God knew, remember the basis of God's election or his choice of us is his foreknowledge. Romans eight twenty nine, first Peter chapter one, first two verses. Um, according to foreknowledge. So that's all it means. It doesn't mean that this is some uh, reformed proof verse or proof text, um, nor does it mean that God chooses some to be saved and others to go to hell. Um, it just means that God knows who they were. And, of course, uh, Peter and John, or, or Barnabas and Paul in that case, they they knew exactly uh, what their job was. Their job was to sow some seeds, scatter the word, and then God's Spirit did the work so people would respond to it. Thank you, Rodney, for the question. Richard. Ooh, this is interesting. Richard says, I've listened to your last three Sunday sermons, and it feels like you expect everybody to be perfect, and it's frustrating. Richard, I would like to know what I said in the last three sermons that feels like I expect anybody to be perfect. I go out of my way to tell us, to tell everybody in the church over and over and over that nobody's perfect, least of all me. But I also say that we all should want to be perfect. Now, I think, Richard, now, uh, I'm, I assume you're listening online. Uh, I, I think what's happening here is that the Holy Spirit is convicting you. I'm teaching. I'm telling you to go out. I'll give you just an example from last Sunday's message. It was the parable of the sower. And I'm telling uh, the church that it's our job. Our job, we're the farmer in the parable. Jesus was the farmer at the time when he told it, but, but throughout the, the course of time, you and I are the farmers. It's our job to go generously sow seed, the seed being the word of God. We're supposed to send it, ever, scatter it everywhere we go. And I tell the, the church that if you're not doing that, then you don't really get it. You don't understand what a treasure we have in this wonderful gospel. And if the Holy Spirit is convicting you, that's not me saying you have to be perfect. It's it's just the Holy Spirit saying, I'm speaking to you. And I don't think, Richard, anybody who's really listened to me or who knows me at all would ever feel like, I expect anybody to be perfect. I want, if somebody's not perfect, I want the Spirit of God to convict them so that they can repent of that. I want the Spirit to be able to say, um, um, there's, I have so much more for you. Surrender and, and follow me. That's what Jesus did. He went to his disciples and said, follow me, and they did. So I don't know why it's frustrating, and, and all I can imagine, Richard, is that... Um, you're being convicted by the Holy Spirit, which is a really good thing. And what he's saying to you is the things that you're being convicted of, repent, and then let the power of God come upon you. And he'll empower you to do all the things that he's asking you to do. So again, nobody's perfect. God's not surprised when we blow it. But it's also sinful to take sort of a casual approach to sin, like, well, you know, nobody can be perfect, so um, what do they expect? Uh, we should aim for perfection. Jesus says that. Paul the Apostle says it. We should aim for perfection. And when we fall short, it should hurt our heart because it hurts the heart of God. It breaks our fellowship with the Lord. So what we do is we simply say, I'm sorry. God's made it so easy for us to fix things like this. And Richard, what I would ask you to do is just open your Bible. Um, wherever you're reading it, it's living and active, it'll move with you. But before you start reading it, say, Lord, I really want to hear from you. I need to hear from you. And I think what you're going to hear is that God wants more for you. And in order for that to happen, then you've got to pursue the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord, the Bible says. And we want to make sure that people that come to church here are born again if they think they are. We want them to have a sense of eternal security. We want them to know the joy of the Lord. But 
I, I don't know what I could possibly have said that made it feel like I expected you or anybody else to be perfect. So that's about as well as I can do on that one, Richard. We've got, what, two minutes left? Two minutes. Here's a quick question. Um, Oliver says, is having a big church a sign of God's blessing on your ministry? Uh, Oliver, I sort of answered this question uh, in, in a, a previous question, um, but but no, uh, having a big church is not a, a, a sign of God's blessing on the ministry. Think about Jeremiah. Jeremiah, for 42 years, proclaimed the word of God and didn't have a single convert. And Jeremiah, of course, we know him as one of the major prophets, and he was faithful to the end. Uh, even when it was hard and when his life was at stake, he was faithful to the end. But nobody got saved, at least as a, a New Testament construct of, of what Jeremiah was doing. So, um, no, having a big church is not a sign at all of God's blessing. Um, as I said to the other question, sometimes the biggest churches are those that tell people what they want to hear. Well, we have 30 minutes left in our week, 340-9585 or toll-free 877 877- 630-KSLR. We'd love to have your calls. This is The Word to Stand Up for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, 340-9585. Cindy's bailed me out on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I'm glad to bail you out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay, so Wednesday night we were in um, 1 Kings chapter 7, and it, it was so fascinating. I could, you could have kept on talking and happy as a clam with, with the rest <laughs> of it. <laughs> so in um, verse, so 1 Kings chapter 7, um, verse 48, you go down just a little bit, it says the golden table on which was the bread of the presence now, the other areas, uh, when it talks about the bread, it's the show bread, which I'm assuming they're the same thing. But when it said the bread of the presence, it just kind of grabbed my heart. I was thinking about, is the, is the show bread or the bread of presence kind of the same thing as when Jesus said he, he is the bread of life? So mm-hmm. I'll let you um, think about that, and I'll listen on the radio. Bye. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you. Uh, that that's exactly why Jesus said he was the bread of life. I think sometimes we forget, um, most of the time people forget, that Jesus' ministry was completely Jewish. We forget that. And so he was, when he says, I am the bread of life, um, um, other times, I'm the living water, and, and other, he, he was referring to symbols that Jews would be um, familiar with the, the the show bread was bread for fellowship or or the bread of the presence where two or three or two or more gathered I'm there in the middle of your presence, so that's exactly what the um, the table, uh, which was on just on the outside of the holy of holies, was in the holy place not in the most holy place, and it was a picture of our fellowship with Jesus Christ. And when we're in fellowship with Jesus Christ, here's the good thing for you and me, Cindy, we get to go into the Holy of Holies every day. A Jew couldn't have imagined that. And that's why it was so significant that upon his death, when he gave up his spirit, the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two from the top to the bottom as though the hand of God tore it. And what he was saying is that there was immediate access to his presence. And when the Holy Spirit comes in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory, we're experiencing a fellowship that Jews couldn't even begin to understand. You know, Cindy, one of the things that always amazes me about that moment, remember, only the high priest and only once a year could go into the Holy of Holies. He had to make uh, atonement first for his sin, sprinkle the blood for his sin, and then for the sins of the people. Uh, but he was the only one that ever got to see the inside 
of the Holy of Holies. Now imagine what it would have been like for whoever was on temple duty that day when Jesus died, whoever was guarding the temple, the moment that that veil tore and they could see into the Holy of Holies, they would have thought they would have to die because they couldn't go in. And yet they would live. Jesus is simply announcing that the way to live has been made. Access to God has been opened. Thank you, Cindy. Good question. Here is a question from Frida. Frida says, I have to work Sundays. How could I go to church? Um, Frida, uh, we have church tonight, 7 o'clock. Um, a lot of churches have Sunday uh, I mean, uh, uh, Friday night or Saturday evening services. Uh, we also, and I think uh, most churches probably have a midweek service. We have a uh, an Old Testament Bible study on, on Wednesdays. So you can go to church. Um, you have to go different times. You know, before I got saved, Paula um, used, to, used to go to church on Friday. She found a church that was open on Friday uh, because um, I told her if she wanted to hang out with me at all, she had to play golf. That's what I was going to do Sunday mornings. We're going to play golf. If she wants to spend time with me, that was the only way to do it. So she accomplished both. She'd take our kids to church on on Friday nights with her, and then we'd have the weekend together. So there's always a way to work around that. And I have no idea, Frida, where you're from or what area of town you live in, but I promise you that there are churches all around you. Just make sure it's a good Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church uh, that have services available. Um, Frida, if you're close to us, we have a woman's Bible study on Mondays. Um, wonderful group of women. They're faithful every Monday to be here. Um, um, if you have a family, uh, that same night on Mondays, we have our men's study and our, our junior high and high school uh, Bible studies. So you can bring the whole family together. Um, so there's plenty of plenty of opportunities to go to church. God understands people that have to work on Sundays. But remember, I will not give that to the Lord, which costs nothing. So worship is a sacrifice. So make the commitment. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to get involved in a fellowship. I'm going to I'm going to let the Lord use me. I'm going to let Him um, um, instruct me and help me grow. But it doesn't have to be on Sunday. All days work for the Lord. Ashley says, um, Pastor Ron, what is your opinion about Christians dating online? Ashley, I am such a dinosaur. I want to just say that up front. Uh, I hate online dating. I, I just hate it. I think it's a lack of faith. I think that... Um, People that, that now I'm, I'm speaking generally. I'll, I'll talk about the exception to the rule in a moment. But generally, I think people who are trying to do uh, on their own what what they should wait and let God do, I think they're 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 quenching the work the Holy Spirit wants to do. Uh, I realize people are anxious; they get tired of being alone. Um, we live in a culture that makes people feel, especially young women, feel like if there isn't a, a man in their life, there's something wrong with them. And, and I, I always sense sort of a, a sense of of um, frustration uh, with, with people who are dating online. Um, for sure, you need to be very careful. People aren't who they say they are. Um, I would certainly give somebody a really good interview. If there was somebody that you might be interested in dating, where did they go to church? How long have they been going to church? Ask them the pastor's name. Ask them how they're involved, what kind of service they do, those kind of things. Because online, Ashley, this may shock you, but especially we men will lie to get a date with a cute girl. So, uh, as you can tell, I'm not a fan. Having said that, there are always exceptions to the rule. Um... One of my favorite couples um, here at the church that they met online, and they've been such a blessing to us for a long time. One of the one of the the, the man in the in the marriage I've known him since he was a little boy, and um, and, and so there's it, God's gonna help, uh, but but I just think as a general rule, what we need to do 
is let the Lord lead us. Ashley, in your case, uh, I don't know where you go to church, but but doesn't it make sense that church is the first place you ought to be looking for somebody to date? You can get a chance to know them in a group. You can uh, watch to see what their level of commitment to Christ and to the church is. You can see just from a little distance what their heart is about. Uh, you can see whether they're kind, whether they're patient. You can look for fruit coming from their lives. And for the life of me, I don't understand why. And I get pushed back on this all the time. Well, well, I'm not coming to church to find somebody. I know. I know that's not your motive. But wouldn't it be great if you did and you had the opportunity to really get to know someone and you weren't really taking a risk? I just think online dating is uh, faithless for the most part. And I think it just shows sort of um, how impatient we really, really are. And I think a lot of times God is pers- uh, um, uh, his purpose in making us wait is to teach us patience, teach us to trust him. So uh, I'm not a fan of online dating at all. Uh, I realize I am a dinosaur. There is a whole generation of people uh, who are in their 20s um, who do everything online. And um, I'm not sure that's appropriate. But, hey, that's just one old man. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I'm laughing at this next question. It's anonymous. They want to know if I have a Twitter following. No. I don't even know what a Twitter is. I don't have Twitter. I don't have Instagram. I don't have TikTok. I don't have WhatsApp. I don't even text. So anonymous, no, I don't. And it's not that I'm a Luddite. It's not that I am against any of those things. Uh, I'm really busy. I don't think the world needs to know more about Pastor Ron. Uh, Pastor Ron's purpose in life is to tell people what they really need to know, and that's they need to know more about Jesus. So no, I don't have a Twitter following or anything else online. Um, I, I just find it an enormous waste of time. And and this is another one of those things. I said the last question, I'm a dinosaur. Um, I don't want people to know me. I don't want people to follow me. I want them to follow my Jesus. I preach Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Paul said that was enough for him. That's enough for me. Isn't it amazing how churches changed the world 2,000 years ago? And there was no Facebook. There was nothing. And I think God, the Holy Spirit, did a pretty good job. Here's a question from Paul. Can you tell me the difference between the rapture and the second coming? Yeah, they're completely different. They're about seven years apart, one from the other. And um, the rapture is that moment when Jesus is not coming to earth, but he's going to call us up to meet him in the air. And he's going to take us to be with him where he is. The beginning of John chapter 14, Jesus told his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And then he went on to tell them um, briefly and not, not with detail, but about the rapture of the church. So that's going to happen. Seven years or so after that, then Jesus is going to come back. We're going to be with him. And that's when he's going to come and establish his kingdom on the earth. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus told us to pray. Well, that's when that is going to culminate. That's when he's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives. There's going to be a great earthquake. It's going to split the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is going to establish his throne. And we will rule and reign for 1,000 years on this earth with Jesus um, the great white throne judgment will happen at the end of the thousand years, and then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. So Paul is a big difference. The rapture is us going to heaven to literally will be married to Jesus, the wedding supper of the Lamb, the wedding banquet. And then um, we're going to be with him for seven years, and then we're going to come back. 
And this world that has been in rebellion against God from the beginning, this world is going to be ruled by a dictator, a benevolent, loving, wonderful dictator, but a dictator nonetheless. And that's his second coming when the world is going to have an opportunity to, to see what Jesus always intended for this world and how, it, how he intended it for it to be governed. So that's the difference between the rapture and the second coming. Don't confuse them. They're two completely separate events. Anonymous says, uh, Pastor Ron, what's a good Bible reading plan for this new year? Um, get started right away. It's already February. Time's going fast. Uh, Anonymous, um, I'm not really big on plans. Um, when you do that, it's sort of like an opportunity for the devil to make you feel really guilty if you mess up or if you you, you fall behind. And then we get discouraged and we scrap it for the rest of the year. Let me tell you what I did. Now, when I first got saved, uh, admittedly, uh, anonymous, now for six months, I, I couldn't open the Bible. It was a spiritual battle like you can't believe. But but when I finally opened, I mean, I, I had to purpose in my heart, I'm going to do what I do. Christians have to read their Bibles. I'm going to read my Bible. And and I would do it. I mean, I would get nauseous. I'd get I'd get have these horrible thoughts, and just and finally I just said, I don't care what I have to go through. I'm going to read the Bible. And then notice when I started reading it, I just sort of got it. Now that doesn't mean I was a Bible scholar. It doesn't mean that I had any special insight. But it just made sense to me. And when it made sense to me, I got so hungry to read it that I did just every day. This was my reading plan. I would read. 10 chapters a day, and that was um, 10 chapters in the Old Testament or, or 10 chapters in the New Testament. And, and I would read, try, I would try to do um, 10 chapters of both in a day. That, that really didn't take that long, but it's what I wanted to do. And the reason that's such a good plan is because it forces you to turn the pages. That, that means you get familiar with the overall layout of the Bible and you, you start to get some sense of, of why the Old Testament is important and the New Testament interpreting the Old Testament. So you, you, you get a sense of the wonder of the Bible as it's really God's Word. Now here's what I found, Anonymous, that if I would do that, uh, I could read the Bible two times every year. Two times every year, not just not just read the Bible in a year. But but it wasn't it wasn't that I had to do it; it's that I wanted to do it. Now, if there's a New Testament book, let's just say you're reading Ephesians, there's only six chapters. So so I would stop at six chapters. I'd just read all of Ephesians. And people say, well, that must take a long time. You know, you can take the whole book of Ephesians or Philippians, and if you cut it out and pasted it, it wouldn't take up uh, an entire page of a normal-sized newspaper. So it really doesn't take that long. All we have to do is be committed to do it, understanding that there's going to be spiritual interference in the process of that. So rather than say, get a Bible that says, read the Bible in a year plan, just open your Bible. And what you're going to find, what I found anonymous, is that, that I didn't want to put my Bible down. I'd finish the 10 chapters in the old or 10 chapters in the new, and I didn't want to stop. And so I probably, I'm guessing the first year I was saved, first full year of reading it, after that six months when I didn't read it, that first full year, um, I probably read the Bible four times, cover to cover. I didn't go in order. I don't think it's necessary to go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I I, I just went, um, uh, you know, a, a book in the Old Testament and a book in the New Testament. And that, that gave me a really, really good balance. And, um, you know, I, I just think it's, it becomes a labor of love. And yet I actually got to the place where I felt like I was missing out on so much if something happened and I didn't get to read it. So it was just something that I wanted to do every single day. And I think that's the best way to approach it. Rather than doing something that you have to do and when you fall short or fall behind, the enemy's going to be there to, to, to make you feel really, really guilty. Um, I just think it's better just to 
say, okay, I'm going to do this. Find a place where you can read it, get some good light, get a comfortable chair. Um, I, I couldn't read in bed. Uh, I couldn't read laying down on a couch. I wanted a quiet place. I actually, uh, Anonymous, like to go to a, a library. Uh, I remember when I first came. I've got nobody on the line, so this is just me talking. Oh, I do have somebody on the line. Okay, I won't talk. I remember when we first got to, to San Antonio, uh, I'd get in my $1 truck, and I would drive to Trinity uh, University Library. Uh, they'd let me in. They had a great um, religion section, and I was able to, to, to just have access to everything, and I would spend literally entire days there. So thank you very, very much. Okay, let's see. I thought I had somebody on the line, but I don't see a name on the thing. Go to Robert Spicewood. We got Robert from Spicewood on line one. Robert, thank you for holding. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. Hi. Hey, I got a question for you about uh, one of the parables of Matthew 13, the, the okay. wheat and the tares. In your understanding, okay. do the tares know that they're tares? Uh, probably not. Uh, I think probably uh, they know th- they know they're not wheat, but but I don't think they they probably ascribe any uh, sinful intent. It's not like they're they're intentionally planted by the devil and they were cooperative. You know, uh, Robert. It's interesting. I'm going to be teaching on that passage um, uh, very very soon um, this week. In fact, I think in uh, Mark. I'm not sure if it's in Mark or not, but but we're doing the parables. And um, um, uh, again, I don't think there's any intent. I I just think that Satan um, brings his people to church and and Jesus brings his people to church. And I think sometimes you can't tell the difference. And that was really what uh, the parable of the wheat and tares is all about. Uh, When Jesus was asked, uh, or in the parable, he said, uh, an enemy did this. And then the, the, the worker said, well, should we go grab the tares? He said, no, you might get some wheat in the process. In other words, the wheat and the tares look very much alike. And, and he's going to save um, the, the separation of the two until the time of the harvest. So, uh, Robert, thank you very, very much for that. It's Matthew chapter 13. That the parable of the wheat and tares is not. I know what it is. I'm doing the parable of the mustard seed and the birds growing in the air, which is really misunderstood a lot this time. Thank you very much for calling us from Spicewood. It's good to hear from you. Here is a question from Emily. How can I determine if the Bible alone is God's word or tradition or other interpretations are right? Um, Emily, um, Tradition, and this is a problem in our city, of course. Um, tradition is only a value insofar as it gr- agrees with and is consistent with the Word of God. In other words, any tradition that falls outside of what the Bible says is not good tradition. Um, you know, people believe something, they can believe it their whole lives, their parents can believe it, their grandparents can believe it. Um, but but if it's contradictory to the Word of God, then uh, that tradition is wrong. There's nothing of value relative to traditions. Uh, I was just speaking with a, a, another man uh, earlier this week who said that, that he believes that the, the, the way to get balance is the Word of God, the tradition of the early church fathers, and then traditions that have been passed along throughout the time. And and when I asked him, I said, well, what if those traditions are, are antithetic to what the Bible teaches? And he really didn't have an answer for that. It's like traditions are okay. So um, uh, let me make it easy for you, Emily. The, the word, the word, the word. That's God's word. Tradition is only of value if it is consistent with that. And don't worry about other interpretations or what other people say. It is simply a matter of... Um, God's word has to be the standard because if that's not the only standard, then there is no standard because the standard keeps changing. I know I said standard a lot, but that's important. So, Emily, thank you very, very much. 
340-9585. Here is a called-in question to our studio just now. How important is the communion, and how often should I take it? Once a week or once a year? Um, good question. I think communion, we take communion here at Calvary Chapel uh, the first Sunday every month. So, um, obviously, communion is important. It's one of two sacraments uh, from the early church that has been passed down through the ages, uh, baptism being one and communion the other. Uh, Jesus didn't tell us when to take it, but he said, whenever you take it. In other words, how how often you take it, um, take communion, and uh, but do it with the right heart. So, um, caller, that's the answer. Take it. You can take it at home, uh, but it's just whatever God puts on your heart. We we do it once a month here, the first Sunday of every month, and, and the reason I do that is because I just don't want people um, taking it for granted. I don't want it to be something. Some churches I know do it every time. They, they they meet. Uh, I don't want people taking it for granted. I, I want it to be special. So we limit it here to once a month. So good question. But communion is important. Jesus told us, whenever we do this, we're to do it until he comes again. And we do it with the right heart. And we do it for his glory. Good question. I think we're about out of time here. For the program, don't have time to go to any of the questions. Uh, tonight, I'm going to be teaching Revelation chapter 15 uh, here at 7 o'clock. You can watch it at calvaryessay.com if you can't get here. But we'd love to have you join us. You'll meet some of the nicest people in the world. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, Lord willing, I'll be back on Monday on AM 630, The Word. This is The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.